Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, we continue on in our series in Zechariah. So if you uh, don't have a Bible, we have free ones available to you. I think they're in the back. Um, and that's our gift to you. If you do have one or you have it on your phone, you can turn now, if you haven't already, to Zechariah chapter 6. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if that helps you find it. And we continue on in our series through this book which has been like so far marked by a bunch of visions, and now we see a change in that. But uh, this, this week, something incredible happens, and I'm sure you spent the weekend celebrating um, this amazing accomplishment like I did, but uh, he did it. He accomplished his goal that he set out to 25 years ago, and he, Ash Ketchum became the Pokemon champion. Do you know this? This happened. When I was nine years old, Ash Ketchum received a feisty little Pikachu, and I had long since forgotten um, about Pokemon since those days when I was, like, trying to convince my mom that Pokemon cards were not, like, um, like some kind of demonic, like, Ouija board for kids or something like that. <laughs> I remember having to tell her, like, no, it's, it's fine. It's just, like, a baseball card, but with these little, you know, creatures on it. She's like, I don't know. But, uh, um... I had long since like forgotten that he was even still going. So when I heard the news that he had become champion, I was like, this is, they, they didn't let him become champion for 25 years, like the writers of this television show. It's crazy, right? Uh, that's a long, <laughs> that's a long wait. You know, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot he was trying to do that. Okay. Um, 25 years is a long time to wait. We come to this passage in Zechariah, and just to frame it for you, is like the whole passage is a bunch of promises about the future, right? But this was written in 500 BC, so these people have five centuries to wait for these to be fulfilled in Jesus. 25 years is a long time to wait. 500 years is enough time for generation after generation after generation to pass away and still not realize fully these promises coming true. I've made known before, our family has an affinity for this TV show called Bluey. It's a cartoon. It's the best show on television right now. It's like these seven-minute episodes, and they all make me cry and want to be like a better father. It's, like, it's amazing. Okay, you should check out Bluey. The point is, the problem with Bluey, though, is that it's, it's almost too good. It's too good because Kenzie wants to watch it every day, all day. This causes problems because we don't let her watch TV all day, every day. And so even like this week, you know, we have the conversation. Kenzie's like, can I watch, can I watch Bluey? Yeah, you can watch Bluey at one o'clock. She's like, oh, it's going to be forever. That's forever, she says. It's like, no, it's right after lunch. Oh, lunch is never going to happen, you know. And like the, at this point, like the tears are like welling up. We're like, no, Kenzie, mom and dad promise you will get to watch Bluey after lunch you won't keep your promise, she, you know. She's like heartbroken that she can't watch it right away. It's like it's hard to wait for promises to come true, you know. It's hard to wait for promises to come true. Kenzie is a little ridiculous, sure, like she can't wait till after lunch to watch a show, but she's, ex she's showing like what is the human condition of like we often have to wait for these things we long for to come true, and that waiting is hard. And, uh, promises that come true right away are easy to believe. It's like, oh, I'll be back in five minutes, you know, or your pizza will be ready in 15 minutes, sir. And it's like, well, even if you don't believe that, the stakes are low. 
that if it's like 30 minutes or if the pizza doesn't come at all, it's like you're going to be, you're going to be okay probably. So, but, so, but promises that take a long time to come true and promises that have like a, there's a lot at stake, those are, those can be hard to believe and hard to wait for. And in this passage in Zechariah, we see amazing promises to God's people. But it's like, I think the question before us is like, why, why should we wait for them? Like, why are we so confident that they'll come true? So we titled this series at the very beginning, Hope for Disappointed Christians. That's what this book is about, like the theme. And everybody on this planet, it's, it's good that we call it Hope for Disappointed Christians, not Hope for Disappointed People. Hope for Disappointed Christians. Because everybody on this planet is in the same boat. Like, we all face the same, like, we all are subscribed to the platinum level subscription to, of disappointment in life, right? Because we all face it. In different ways, each of us faces it. But it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Like, we all will face disappointment. Things will happen in our lives that hurt us, that frustrate us, that discourage us, that let us down. People will fail us. Why is this titled Hope for Disappointed Christians? And the answer is because I think we have a unique hope that the world doesn't have. Everybody gets disappointment. Everybody gets disappointment. Not everybody gets the hope that Christianity offers. Only those who believe and trust in God do. So disappointment is for everyone, but the hope only comes for people who actually trust God. And this matters, right? Because like, God promises a lot of things to Christians in the Bible. He promises that he's going to get rid of evil. He promises that he's going to save people for himself. He promises that he's going to bring them to the promised land or rule justly. He promises that our pain has a purpose. That's a big one, you know? Because you go through something really painful and it's nice to feel like there is some kind of reason. And I think that like, the difference between those who find hope in God and those who remain disappointed is pretty simple. It's just belief. Belief is the difference between those who find hope and those who stay disappointed, become cynical. Whether you believe that God will actually make good on his promises. You know, that's the difference. So, it's like, um, for example, I'm, an, I'm a skeptic of Santa Claus, you know? Some people are true believers, not me. What that means is that I don't find a lot of hope around Christmas time in Santa Claus, you know? I'm not like staying, trying to stay awake and, and setting traps in the chimney, or that's probably not what people who like Santa Claus do, setting cookies out. <laughs> I was like thinking like, that's what I would do, like I want to catch him, right? But that's because I'm a skeptic, right? I don't, wanna, I don't actually believe that Santa Claus is is real. And so I don't find hope. And so this is just very basic. Like, those who don't actually believe God is real will not find hope in him. They won't. And so for those people who don't find hope in God, it's like the, the skeptic, the secular person is going to come to Christianity, and they're going to reject it. They're going to say, I don't actually believe this is true. It's like a fairy tale. It's just myth, whatever they believe. And then what are you left with when you face pain? You know, I have, like, I think it's a, I think it's a real um, flaw in the skeptical worldview is like, what do you do with pain if you don't, apart from God? And I, what I see in that world for my friends that inhabit that world is they go through pain and they end up relying on cliches. 
Like, it'll get better. And it's like, maybe. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll get worse. Cancer doesn't always go away. Marriage isn't always healed. You don't always land on your feet. You know, it's like things happen all the time where things go from good to bad and then from bad to worse. So it'll get better, maybe, you know. Or here's another one. Another one is uh, there's a reason for everything, you know. It's like, well, if you don't believe there's a God, you don't believe that anyone's in control, then how do you know that there's a reason for your suffering? I think if you don't believe in God, if you don't actually believe, you don't actually trust Him. And it's like you kind of have your feet set firmly in midair. It's like no foundation for the, to believe that things are going to work out, you know. On the flip side, I think there's like a real criticism of Christians that is a fair question for, for skeptics to ask of Christianity, which is, why should we trust God? You know? Oh, you say you trust God, it gives you a lot of hope, but... It, you know, is it the same as trusting Santa Claus? Because then it's not worth putting your trust in either. It's like, everyone admits that we all suffer. I'm not keeping score whether Christians or non-Christians suffer more, but it, from my perspective and what I've seen, it's like a tie ball game. We all face a lot of suffering in the world. And so one of the criticisms of Christianity that you hear a lot is like, Christians are weak-minded people. That's why they, they cling to a God who, like, will save them, who will give them, like, heaven uh, when they die, in order to give them the strength to face the suffering that we all face, right? Doesn't matter if it's real or not real, it's just it's helping these people who are weak and, like, cling to this idea. Even though their re- religion is ridiculous, it gives them hope. But it's like a false hope. It gives them a way to navigate, it gives Christians a way to navigate disappointment, but it's not actually true or grounded in reality. It's just like naive, you know. And so critics of Christianity will say, yeah, I'm sure it's nice to believe in God. That doesn't mean it's true. And I think that's fair. Things that are nice aren't always true. My daughters think the tooth fairy is nice, you know. It's like, but my bank account goes down because of the tooth fairy. A nice idea doesn't mean it's a true one. And so I think the thing we have to wrestle with as Christians is like, is God actually true? Is he actually trustworthy? Is he actually real? Is he actually going to come through on his promises? And a lot of our lives are spent waiting for his promises to come true. In the end, will he actually make things right? Will he actually deliver on his promise? Does he actually have a plan? These are big questions for us to, like, whether we actually believe or not. I think Zechariah 6 gives us the answer. Sorry, that was like a Jeremy-length intro, and he's not even here, and I'm so sorry. I texted him this morning, and I was like, I'm ashamed, but it's going to be long. Okay, but we're in the text now, <laughs> Zechariah chapter 6. So we're going to work our way through this passage, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see promises made, and promises kept, and promises believed. Promises made, promises kept, and promises believed. The first is promises made, and that's going to be the majority of our time this morning, are these promises that God makes to his people through Zechariah. Here we go. Verse 9, the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, and he says to Zechariah, he says, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
this is not a vision. This is something he's actually supposed to do. Like, they will physically do this. So we've moved now past the last vision, which was at the beginning of chapter 6. Now we're just into a prophecy, a command that's given from God to his people. So instead of seeing this vision, Zechariah hears from the Lord, and now he's supposed to deliver this message to the people. And the message he's supposed to deliver is like a visual one. He's supposed to go to these people's houses, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Josiah, uh, take some silver and gold for them, make a crown, and then find just Joshua, who's the high priest, and put it on his head. And if you remember Joshua from earlier in this book, or maybe you're joining us, jumping in for the first time, but Joshua is the priest who gets the, he has like the filthy clothing that gets exchanged for the clean, pure garments. He's cleansed, he's clothed, and then he's commissioned and sent out to do good, right? To serve the people, God's people, in the temple. And Joshua shows up here, again, as the person who would be the visual, wear the crown uh, for the promises that God will make. Verse 13 now. Verse 13 now, and there's a strange thing about Joshua being the choice to wear the crown. Joshua is the high priest. For those of you that are less familiar, it was like the high priest would go and he would make the, the sacrifice, present the sacrifice to God so that their, the people's sins would be forgiven. High priests did not wear crowns. Kings wore crowns. We'll see this throughout, that this is like a dual role that this promised branch would, would bring. Verse 12. And say to Joshua as he wears the crown, say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. It's like uh, Norm said at the beginning of the service, it was so appropriate. It's like we read the Old Testament, I think a lot of Christians read the Old Testament looking for ways to like be a better person, you know? Oh, I want to be like Moses, you know, delivering the people. I want to be like Abraham, you know. I want to be like David. And it's like the Old Testament is not primarily a guide for like how to be like a good person. Jesus says, he claims, so if you believe that Jesus was telling the truth about all the things that he said, one of the things that he said was that all the scriptures pointed to him. In other words, the primary way that we read the Bible here at Gospel Life Church and that we should read the Bible as Christians is to read the Old Testament and look for shadows of Jesus. Like where does he show up? Because he shows up over and over and over and over again. And this one is pretty obvious how he shows up. So if you've been with Gospel Life, you should be like, oh, this is talking about Jesus. And I'll be like, yes, it is. It's awesome. This is another shadow of Jesus that's coming. And so here's how this man, it's a spoiler, but this is about Jesus. Here's how this man is described. It's a man who's a branch, which can also be translated like shoot. It's going to come up. Joshua stands there with this crown. He's the high priest wearing the crown, but there is someone who will come. He's not talking about Joshua. This is someone who hasn't yet come, who hasn't yet revealed himself, someone who will come, who will rise up, who will build the temple. This is all futuristic language to describe this branch that is coming. And he will build the temple. And the language here that's used would ring a bell for the Israelites. Because they would think about the, the, like the words, the branch, you know, the crown, the temple, the high priest. And it would all mean something to them. 
These, these predictions aren't just like, oh, there's a good person coming. It's like this would mean something more, more than that to the Israelites as they heard this. Because they would remember the prophecy of Isaiah where it's told like the branch, the root of Jesse in the Old Testament. Jesse, this branch would be in the line of the king, okay? That, that language of the branch or the root would ring a bell of like someone who was promised to rule over them. And the crown of the king would bring to mind David and Solomon and these great kings they had of their past. And the temple would be like the place where, you know, like this is really unique about Christianity. God actually wants to be with his people. You know, the people of this day, like if you compare the religions of the day, and this is written, it's like the gods did not really want to be with their people. They, their people were an amusement for them. Something to keep life interesting, right? And they would drop in and, and drop out and, and have no like thought about what happened to these people apart from amusement. And yet God wants to be with his people. So when this passage talks about building the temple, it's like this is the pinnacle of the way in which God dwells with his people, where God makes it possible for him to be with his people. And even then, his presence with his people is so glorious and so awesome that he has to like be relegated to like this one day out of the year in this one place where one person from the people of God could go into the presence we call the Holy of Holies. So I think it was like two weeks ago, Chris Dahl, Gospel Life Extraordinaire in the back, he's got a hot sauce collection, okay? And he brought it over for a hot sauce tasting. It's like God wants to be with his people. You're like, what does that have to do with hot sauce? Beth, you look so concerned. Okay. But we're trying the hot sauce, and he's like, this one's actually hot. Like, we should not put a lot on this. Just, like, dip a toothpick in, and then wipe that on your nacho, and then eat it. And that's, like, enough, because it's so hot. And this is kind of like God's glory and his presence is so much that we can only take, like, a little bit. And so it's designed in the Old Testament that in the Holy of Holies, one day a year, one person would get to go in to make a sacrifice to make sure that the sins of the people were taken care of. And that person was the high priest. So this Joshua, who wears the crown, who's like representing this king who would rebuild the temple, is also the one who will make sure that the people's sins are taken care of. The people of Israel would, would think about this. When I was, when I was younger, it's like a profound thing. When I was younger, uh, this story is not profound, but this idea that the high priest would take, would like go in on the behalf of the people to make sure their sins are forgiven. It was like a profound thing. So when I was younger, my brothers and I have, have two brothers, one older, one younger, and we have like a little bit of an age difference. So my older brother's four years older, my younger brother's six years younger. Four years older, six years younger, I'm in the middle. And we were all playing outside, and Dylan, the youngest, had this uh, like electronic Power Wheels car that he could drive around. So six-year-old Dylan is driving this around, and Brandon and I were playing sports in the yard, okay? And Dylan, who's six, decides to drive on the road. We live in the country, so it's not like generally a big problem. And he gets hit by a car, okay? He gets in it. He's fine. He's fine. He gets, he gets in his first car accident at six years old. And I remember it so vividly. Like, he's going, and the car, like, slows down but doesn't stop, which is still to this day, I'm like, why? This is crazy. But hits his Power Wheels car, and it just, like, spins down the road <laughs> with little Dylan inside. And Brandon and I look at each other like, Dylan just got in a car accident, you know? And Brandon's 16, and I'm 12, and Dylan's 6. Now, you know, like, 
it doesn't work for Brandon to go in and tell mom that Dylan got hit by a car because Brandon's the oldest. He's responsible, right? So I go in on his behalf to make sure that his punishment is like lessened, right? So it's like, mom, Dylan got hit by a car. Don't worry. He's okay. He's okay. Brandon's with him. It's all good. He just got a little hit by a car, okay? You know, it's like this. So I go in to, the, to lessen Brandon's punishment because he's like really responsible. So the high priest would go in, even though the people are responsible for their sin, the high priest would go in and make a case on God's behalf through a sacrifice that their sins should be forgiven. This is the high priest's job. But this is not just a high priest, it's a high priest who wears a crown because this prophecy is specific about what the king will be like. So we talk about God's promises that he's making well, it's like he's making a promise that this king will come and build the temple. In other words, he's making a promise that this king will come and restore the way for God to be with his people. And he says, this king shall bear royal honor. Another way of saying it is like it could also be translated clothed in majesty. He's going to sit on this throne. He's going to be a majestic, honorable ruler. He'll be fair and just. There will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will flow from the king and the high priest. This person who's coming will have two jobs. One throne, one seat, two jobs. To rule over his people justly and in righteousness and to make sure their sin is dealt with so that God can be with them. So we have these promises, right? And again, it's like promises are nice if they're true. Tooth fairy is nice. It's not true. So, so when God makes these promises to the Israelites, it's like you can see why they would struggle to believe. I want to describe three kings for you. This Zechariah happens as the Israelites come out of slavery to Babylon. They've been enslaved as a people, captive for 70 years. And now they're coming back to their country to rebuild for themselves a people, right? Prior to that captivity, there were three kings that ruled in order. The first king was Josiah. He became king when he was eight years old. So he was... That seems like a horrible idea, but this is when he becomes king, and he actually is a good king. He's righteous. He follows the Lord. He actually makes it his mission to reform the temple and the actions of the priests in Israel. So he makes it his job to make things right so that the Israelites would worship the one true God and stop turning to idols and immorality. In fact, this is how he was described. In, in 2 Kings, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. This is the first king. And Israel thrived under the first king. His son is the second king. His son's name is Jehoiakim. His son turned his back on what his father was. So if you have like your dad, you're like, his, the apple didn't far fall from the tree. This apple was in a different state than the tree. He was evil in all his ways. And actually, after just a few years of ruling, his evil was so pervasive that God sent Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to come and take him captive. He wasn't killed, though, but he was actually taken captive and then sent tribute so that all the wealth of Israel was funneled to these people that held them, that, was, that had their king captive. 
He was evil. The third king was Jehoiakim's son. His name was Kaniah. So Josiah's grandson. Now if you had this guy, it's like, you have this model of your, your grandfather, who's a good man, who's a good king. And then you have your father who turned away, the opposite, right? He has like yin and yang for his family history. And now he has to choose what kind of king he's going to be. But we probably got like a, an idea of the kind of king he was going to be in the description of Josiah, where it's like, nor did any like him arise after him. Because Kaniah would be a king who would also turn towards evil. And just three months into Kaniah's reign, Babylon would come and destroy the temple. This is what they did. The king of Babylon took King Kaniah, who was evil, who did evil in the Lord's sight, prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. So these people who get this prophecy, it's like, it wasn't just like, I think sometimes it's hard to put ourselves in their shoes, but it's helpful to know, like, they had seen bad kings and the destruction that they had caused, so this promise means something to them, you know? This isn't just like, oh, you're going to get like a better governor for the next four years, or you're going to get a worse governor for the next, you know, it's like, we're crazy. This is like, this guy is going to determine the fate of your life. And so a promise of a good king coming coming meant something to them. And we're not that different. Like, we still, if you paid any attention the last week, it's like people are up in arms one way or the other, you know? Because our hope is that we would have a good ruler. It's like indwelt in us that we long for a good ruler. When we read this account of Zechariah, the Israelites are returning from captivity, from slavery and exile in Babylon. And it's only seven years before. World War II was 80 years ago. And think how much we know about World War II. Like, it's not that far from our memories. We know people, most of you in this room know people that served in World War II. So 70 years ago, they know these three kings. I come back to these three kings because it's going to help us understand what Zechariah, what the Lord is promising to his people. Zechariah 6.13, read Listen to this. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on the throne. Jeremiah the prophet, just before Zechariah, he wrote about the two evil kings and he said this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the last two evil kings, right? Though Kaniah was king of Judah, where the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off, Kaniah. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he would continue to write, Write this man, Coniah, down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. And then in the next chapter, Jeremiah would give the people the idea of what kind of king actually would come to rule them. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. A righteous branch will rule. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And what kind of king will he be? He'll be one that brings justice and righteousness to the land. So it's like, the Israelites have heard of this branch. And they knew it wasn't Jehoiakim. 
and they knew it wasn't Kaniah, and they saw the result of those king, and then they're promised again. No, the brand, that promise is not done. That promise is still coming. They hear it reiterated here. It's like telling them again, no, I promise you'll get to watch shows at one o'clock. I promise you will. It's right after lunch. Mom and dad promise. And just tr- God is trying to get them to cling to the truth that his promise is going to come true. God's promises aren't just made, though they're kept. Imagine you're planning a vacation, okay? And you go to the vacation store, and you... <laughs> I don't know how to plan vacations. So you go to the vacation store, and uh, they have, like, different vacations you can choose. And you're look th- looking through all the brochures, okay? And then you come across the brochure for Disney World, the Magic Kingdom. And you're like, this, this is the one I want. This is the promise that I want. And you're looking through it, and you see Epcot, and you see... Mickey Mouse and the small little world people. And in the brochure, there's no lines. It looks amazing, you know. It's like, it's like, and you are filled with, like, excitement, right? Because you decide in that moment, you're like, this. This is where I'm going. So now you have this hope of this thing that you're looking forward to. But it's not like you just sit around and wait till one day you wake up in Disney World. It's like, no, it actually changes Having that hope, seeing that brochure, saying this is where I'm headed, that changes the way that you live now, right? You start to save money. You start to look at flights. You look at the different resorts you can stay at. It actually changes. Like you eventually, you buy a plane ticket. Eventually, you pack your suitcase. You get ready, right? Joshua is just a brochure, you know? This passage in Zechariah has Joshua as a brochure, that should get us ready for the real thing. Get us ready for Jesus to come. The promises that God makes in this chapter are meant to stoke like hope in the people's lives so that they will obey him and long for the day that Jesus comes. They'll get ready. And it's good that they get ready because God doesn't just make these promises, he keeps these promises. Jesus is the promise kept. He's the one for whom the descriptions of the branch are truest. He's the man the prophets expected. He's the descendant in David's line. He's the builder of the temple. He's the one with the royal honor, the one who has all clothed in majesty. He's the one who sits on the throne as the king of kings and as the true and better high priest because he's the one who will rule actually be, his rule will actually be just and good and righteous but he will also go on our behalf to the Father to take care of our sin as the high priest. He's the one who will bring peace. He's the true Savior who wears the true crown. Jesus is the king who will bring the people out of captivity, unlike Jehoiakim and Kaniah, who, whose evil leads them into captivity. He's the one who will bring them riches rather than poverty who will protect them so no one can harm them he's the one who will lead them to righteousness rather than doing evil jesus is all of god's promises made promises kept he's the one who shows us that we can actually trust god the promises made to the israelites like fill them with hope but we've seen all of these promises made to the israelites kept and so that should fill us with peace trust. Because Joshua is just a brochure and Jesus is the real thing and now we don't have to look at the brochure like the Israelites did, right? 
We've been to Disney World. We've experienced Jesus' goodness. There's like hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. Hundreds of promises and prophecies that all come true in Jesus. So it's like, why should you trust God? Because he's never lied before. Which is not just something we look back on as like, great, I'm glad God kept that promise. It's like he also makes a lot of promises for now, you know, not just for 2,000 years ago. It's like, think about the promises God made. If he's trustworthy, then that changes your life. He promises that he'll never leave, leave you. And that matters because some people will leave you. Most people, you know. Someone will betray you. Someone will hurt you. Not God. He promises to never change, and that's, that matters. Because tomorrow you might wake up and, like, things in your life will change, but he won't. And he's not going to change how he thinks about you, how he cares for you. He's not going to change his mind and be like, you know what, I think I'm going to actually, like, reject these people today. I'm actually not going to provide my spirit to them today. He promises to make all things right, and that matters. What? Because there's, like, a lot of evil in the world. And there's, like, a lot of pain and suffering that we all face. Like, disappointment, right? It's a, it's a level playing field, whether you're a believer or not. You're all going to face disappointment. It matters that God is going to make the promises to make things right. Promises to forgive your sin. And that matters, because you don't come to church being like, I hope you didn't notice, you know, what I did on Thursday. Or like, I better not screw up this week, or I might I just like call it a day, I'm not coming back. It's over. Promises that death isn't the end. I got a text from a friend last night that his grandma passed away yesterday. It's like, you think that promise matters to him, you know? you believe. It's like just a matter of belief, though. If you, if that hope is a matter of belief. If you actually believe God's promises are true, then they're going to make a difference in your life. They're going to give you hope even in the midst of disappointment. And you should believe because God has never broken a promise before. He didn't break his promise to, to Adam to crush the head of the serpent. He didn't break his promise to Abraham to make a people for himself. He didn't break his promise to Noah to not destroy everything again. He didn't break his promise to David to have a king that would rule on his throne forever. He didn't break his promise to his people to dwell with them and be with them. He didn't break his promise to Isaiah that he was sending a mighty counselor, a wonderful counselor, and a mighty God, and a prince of peace. He didn't break his promise to Jeremiah that there would be a branch that would come and rule just and righteous. And he didn't break his promise through Zechariah that there would be a king who would not only rule justly, but would deal with our sin righteously. He has never broken a promise to you, and he never will. And it's like he kept all of those promises at Calvary, so it's like, should we even trust, trust God? Yeah, we should. Why? Because he died for us. Because he sent his only son to make all of those promises come true. And it's like, it's like when suffering comes and like pain, painful things happen, you can like be angry and hurt and betrayed and like I think the question like we are forced to ask is do I trust God still? It's like easy to trust God when like things are good, you know. It's like, do I trust God still? But he has not broken one promise to you yet, not even when it cost him his only son. And it's like, but Justin, I doubt. It's like, yeah, me too, (laughs) you know. What should we do when we doubt? 
look to the cross. Why? Because God isn't messing around. God makes his promises and he keeps his promises and we believe his promises. And There's a story of a man named um, Polycarp. He was a pastor just like a, a hundred, a little over a hundred years after Jesus. And, and he lived in a city where at the time persecution had broken out. He was an old man when persecution got to its um, peak in his city, but the governor of the city was trying to get extinguished Christianity amongst the people. And so he would whether through bribes or threats of torture or actual punishment and death, try to get these people to recant. And Polycarp had a big target on his back because he was a, a leader of the church in this city, this old man. And he went into hiding, but one day they, they found him, and sure enough, they brought him on trial. And the witnesses write down about the trial. They say, like, the governor started by offering him a bribe, to which Polycarp said, Riches in heaven are far greater than the riches you offer. So Polycarp believed that God would keep his promises, you know? And then the governor said, well, if you want to take my bribe, like, we're going to sentence you to death. We're going to burn you at the stake. And Polycarp answered, he said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I betray my king? And so he was killed. I don't think Polycarp regrets trusting God's promises versus the governor's promises, you know? And I don't think we will ever regret trusting God's promises instead of the world's promises. So what do we do in response to this? That we have a father we can trust? Zechariah ends chapter 6 with this. He says, Those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Two things. One is we help him build his temple, his church. And the other is we obey his voice. It's like if you trust God, then you trust him enough to do what he says, you know? But it's like pretty simple. We tell others that there is a father that they can trust. And a lot of people need to hear that. We all need to hear that, right? that they can actually hang on to his promises because they're good. And then we live like we trust him. We live like we trust him. And in the moments we doubt, we look to the cross. And we're going to do that now. Something we do every week at Gospel Life Church is take communion. And communion is simply like looking back to the cross, right? Reminding ourselves that he, our Father is trustworthy, that his word is good and true and we can rely on him. So when Jesus sets up the bread and the wine, he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me because it's important to remember that God keeps his promises because disappointment will come at the level playing field for the Christian and the non-Christian. But we look to the table and we're reminded that his promises are good and that the end of all evil and pain is coming. If you're a believer, I invite you to participate, like whether you're a member of Gospel Life or not. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to do so, to trust him, that he's good. Um, but if you're not a believer, I would just ask you to observe as we remind ourselves of God's goodness. So you can come forward and get the elements now.